has anyone really important to you ever broken a promise to you? Like someone you really trusted and counted on, like someone you loved, that they made a vow or they swore an oath to you and then they broke it? You know, it could be a cheating spouse or the betrayal of a friend or it could just be a parent who said they were going to show up and didn't. I mean, that stuff hurts, man. It hurts when people break promises to us. It hurts when people we deeply care about don't do what they say they're going to do. If that's you and you've experienced that, here is a characteristic of God that I just want to make sure that you're aware of, and that's that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises, always. And there are a lot of promises that God makes in the Bible. I encourage you to go and seek them out on your own and be encouraged by them. I have a lot of them memorized, and I can testify to you that God has never broken a single promise to me. God has proven himself dependable and steadfast. And this morning, as we continue on in this series, studying the life of a man named Abraham, I just want to examine this very specific promise that God makes to Abraham. And it's so interesting because the significance of this promise is emphasized in the book of Hebrews. And, and we've already read that this morning, but you may not have known that the book of Hebrews was actually written over 2,000 years after the life of Abraham. 2,000 years later, this promise that God made to Abraham is still so significant that people are still talking about it and still writing about it. Let's read that together again. It says this. It says, Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it, and without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath, so that those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls that leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Like, what a verse man like how amazing is that if that doesn't stir you up a little bit if that doesn't inspire you a little bit like check your pulse right this is amazing this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls this hope that God keeps his promises this hope that God shows up for us I mean it must be a pretty significant promise that God makes to Abraham if they're not only writing about it 2,000 years later but writing things like this about it, like, do you understand the imagery of this? Do, do you know what an anchor is designed to do? Like, when I was in the Navy, I was on one of the smallest ships that there was, and even on this small ship, the anchor was, like, way bigger than I am. Why? What does an anchor do? An anchor keeps you steady when the waters start to rage. An anchor keeps you consistent when you're surrounded by a sea of inconsistency, and so don't miss the imagery of this passage. This hope that we have in Jesus is an anchor for our souls. This hope we have in Jesus keeps us steady when the waters start to rage. This hope we have in Jesus keeps us consistent in a world full of inconsistency and instability, and if we're pulling all of that out of a promise made 2,000 years before Hebrews was even written. Again, I'm just emphasizing before we even get into it that that has got to be some kind of promise. And so 
Let's go there together this morning. It's Genesis chapter 15, 2,000 years before the book of Hebrews. And I just want to read about this promise that God makes to Abraham, which has been so significant in the lives of God's people. And just as a reminder, as we read this, this passage refers to him as Abram, but God will change his name to Abraham. So whether we say Abram or Abraham, we're talking about the same guy. It says this in Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 1. It says, after these things, after these things, and I just really quickly want to give you context about what it means when it says after these things. Last week, we started in Genesis chapter 12, and we read that God had called Abraham out of this life of serving false gods and uh, the, the grief of losing his brother and the shame and sadness of not being able to have kids that God called Abraham out of that brokenness and called him into this new mysterious life that would be filled with great purpose, although Abraham didn't really know what that was going to look like. That was Genesis chapter 12. Today, we're jumping ahead to Genesis chapter 15. And so when it says after these things, it's really talking about the stuff that happens in Genesis chapter 13 and 14. And just so you know, what happens in Genesis chapter 13 and 14 is that there's this great war involving nine different kings, and Abraham somehow gets tangled into this war. And also during this time, Abraham's nephew named Lot gets captured and held as a war prisoner, and Abraham has to rally over 300 men to go and save his nephew. It's really good stuff. I encourage you to go read it. There's a lot going on. But from Genesis chapter 12, which we read last week, to Genesis chapter 15, which we're reading this week, 25 years have gone by. 25 years of Abraham following God and waiting on God to fulfill this promise for a better life. And after saving his nephew and being involved in this great war, this is where we pick up Abraham's story. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham or Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So Abraham is basically saying to God, like, God, I'm, I'm old now. And, um, and so really whatever you, you give to me would have gone to my kids, but you also haven't given me kids yet. So even if you do reward me, whatever you give me is just going to be inherited by someone who works in my house, not even by someone in my family. The passage goes on and Abram says this, he says, Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household, one of my servants, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. So Abraham has been unable to conceive uh, children with his wife Sarah, she can't conceive, and God has promised Abraham that he's going to have children, and yet... It's almost 25 years later, and Abraham and his wife are still waiting. And God tells Abraham, who is still childless, that his son, who's not even born or conceived yet, is going to be the heir of his household. God is basically telling Abraham, you're going to need to wait a little more. It says this in verse 5, it says, And he brought him outside, God brought Abram outside, and said, Look toward the heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. God says, your offspring are going to outnumber the stars, Abraham. God tells Abraham, I know you've been waiting your entire life for children. I know I told you 25 years ago 
that I give you and your wife children. I know you don't have them yet, but guess what? Your offspring are going to outnumber the stars. And if you're like me, you're almost expecting Abraham to be like, yeah, right, dude. Like, it's been 25 years with zero kids. And me and my wife are old now, if you hadn't noticed, and you're telling me we're going to have this massive family with all these descendants. That's what you'd expect Abraham to say. That's probably what I'd say. But Abraham doesn't say that at all. This is how he responds to God. And it says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness, meaning God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. So Abraham trusted God. Even though things looked pretty bleak, even though the evidence was stacked against him, even though what God said would happen was basically impossible now, Abraham trusted that God would deliver, and the Bible says God looked at Abraham and said, that is what righteousness looks like. It's not being a sinless person. It's not being this amazing evangelist. It's not being impressive by the world standards. No, God says righteousness is trusting that I will show up for you even when it doesn't look the way you thought it would. Righteousness is relinquishing control of your situation and saying, God, I have no idea how this is going to work out for anything good, but I know that you're good. I'm choosing to believe that you are good. That's righteousness according to this passage. It says, and this is how God responded to him. It says, and he said to him, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, his hometown where he was worshiping other gods. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abraham said in response to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, it's like, wait a minute, because Abraham just said that he believed God. He just said that he trusted God. And now what does Abraham say in the very next breath? But how can I know? God, I believe you, but how can I know? Is that not the life of a Christian in a nutshell? Like, is that not the tension that we feel when things get hard? Like, God, I know you're good and I trust you, but like, can you give me a little reassurance here? Have you ever prayed this? Like, God, give me something. Like, give me anything to know you're in this thing because I believe in you. I, I really do. But as I look around at things and as I observe my situation and I observe the world around me, everything is screaming at me that you're not going to come through and I just can't piece it together. Please show me. And maybe it's just me, but I can't count the number of times that I have said what Abraham just said. It reminds me of this interaction that Jesus had in the New Testament with this man who his son was possessed by a demon. This man, his, his child is possessed by a demon. And as this man's son is convulsing on the ground and foaming at the mouth, this man cries out to Jesus, please save him if you can. And Jesus says, if I can, anything is possible if you believe in me. And the man basically echoes Abraham's words and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Man, I am telling you guys, that has been one of the mottos of my life. God, I believe, but I am struggling here. God, I believe, but my faith is weak and I'm weak. God, I believe, but I need you to help me believe more. 
And so Abraham is in this situation. He's hurting. He's waiting on things to get better. God, I believe, but how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? And this is where we're going to see God make a promise that they'll be writing about 2,000 years later, a promise that we are talking about now 4,000 years later. Genesis 15, verse 9, says, And he said to him, God said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, if you've never studied this, this makes absolutely no sense to you. You're probably thinking, what in the world is this 12 days of Christmas horror story that we just read? Like, what is going on here? And that's valid. Like, these, this, is, this is intense. These are some wild words. And, and in our context, you are off the hook if this makes no sense to you. That's all right. But the thing is, in Abraham's time, they would have known exactly what's happening because you see what we just read what we just read is actually how people would make oaths to one, to one another in Abraham's day. Like, that's how people would make covenants, these binding agreements. You know, today, we just use our signature, right? We'll just sign for something. We're a society that writes, they were not. And so, you know, that's how we bind a contract. We'll just, we'll just put our signature on it. When you get married, you sign the marriage license. When you hire someone to work, you both sign and agree on the work that's going to be done. There are legal implications to you offering your signature on something. So like if you break the vows you made to your spouse, it's not that you stood there and spoke to them that's going to hold you accountable in court. It's the fact that you signed the marriage license. If you don't pay someone for a job, but you signed saying you would, there are going to be consequences. If that person takes your money, but they don't do the work that they signed saying they were going to do, there are consequences. Today, it's your signature. In Abraham's day, it was a lot different. They didn't sign to make a covenant. This, this is what they would do. This is what it would look like. They would take animals or an animal, and they would slay those animals. And then they would cut the animals in half, and they would use the pieces of the animals to, like, make this path, like, on each side. And then they would walk between these severed animal pieces. I know it's intense, but this is how they made a promise. And the reason they did this is because when they walked between the pieces, this is what they were saying. They, they were saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, if I don't do everything that I say I'm going to do, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. You can cut me out of your life. You can beat me. You can tear my flesh. You can destroy me. You can kill me if I don't do what I have promised to do. And they would literally walk between this physical representation of the consequences if they didn't keep their word. I mean, you talk about hardcore. We're out here signing documents, and they're out here slaying animals and saying, if I don't keep my promise, you can do to me what we did to these animals. Like, it's serious. This is serious. And Abraham knows this. That's why he doesn't even question what God tells him to do. He knows, oh, we're going to make a covenant. So Abraham gets these animals, and he slays them, and he sets them up, and he's like fighting off birds to keep them off the animal pieces like stay away from my heifer you vultures I'm trying to make a deal with God here so Abraham sets up everything for this covenant 
making ceremony, and then this is what happens next. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. It says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now this is where things get a little mind-bendy, because these words that God is saying to Abraham is actually making two different but very similar promises. So there's two promises that God makes here about things that will happen in the future. God's making a promise with Abraham about some things that will happen in the future. The first thing God is telling Abraham is going to happen is he's talking about everything that happens in the book of Exodus. If you've never read it, the the nation of Israel is going to exist. They're all going to come from Abraham's bloodline, and then they're going to go on to be captured by Egypt. If you've ever read the story of Moses or you've seen the prince of Egypt, this is what God is referring to. The people of Israel are going to be slaves for 400 years. They're going to suffer, they're going to struggle, and then God is going to send them a hero, Moses, to deliver them. God is going to bring them out of bondage, and they're going to experience freedom. And then the nation that held them captive would go on to experience the judgment and wrath of God. And so the first promise that God makes is that Israel is going to be emancipated from Egypt. A nation that doesn't even exist yet is going to be bound by slavery in Egypt, and then God's going to free them. Then, catch this, this is where it gets interesting, as God is talking about the Israelites and Egypt and Moses, God is also simultaneously talking about us and all of humanity right now. That all people are going to be slaves. You see, but he's not talking about physical slavery, he's referring to spiritual slavery. That, that people will be dead in their sins, people will be slaves to their desires, and the world is going to be broken and things are going to be dark and things are going to feel hopeless but then God is going to send a hero Jesus God is going to come himself and deliver his people God's going to bring them out of bondage and they're going to experience freedom and then those who held them captive the world and the enemy will experience the judgment and wrath of God the second promise that God makes to Abraham is humanity's emancipation from sin See, two vastly different but also very similar promises that God makes to Abraham. And if you remember last week when I said everything in the Old Testament points ahead to the gospel somehow. Everything points to Jesus. This is a really good example of that. These amazing two promises that God makes. But remember, the ceremony isn't finished yet because no one's walked between the slain animals. And so the passage goes on and it gets crazier from here it says this check this out it says when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces passed between the animal pieces on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates 
the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so all this land that had not been taken up was going to make the nation of Israel. And God said, that's going to start right now. These things I just talked about are about to start happening. But did you catch what happened? This, this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch passes through these severed animals. Interesting, right? Actually, the Hebrew words for, for smoking fire pot and flaming torch, English is kind of a rough translation of those words because these words were actually mysterious. If you look elsewhere in the Hebrew language, the words for fire and smoke are not the same words that they use here. Actually, the only other time these specific Hebrew words are used are in the book of Exodus. First, Moses meets God on this mountaintop, and the same fire and smoke like swallows up the mountain and makes the whole land tremble. And then later, the presence of God leads the people of Israel either by a cloud during the day or the same word for smoke or by a pillar of fire by night. And so if you haven't made the connection yet, God himself passed through these animals and made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. God passed through these animals himself. And then here's another thing that we all need to be aware of. It's that Abraham didn't pass through the animals. He didn't. Only, only God did. And actually from a historical standpoint and what we know about these ancient ceremonies, this was absolutely unheard of. It didn't happen this way. Because in this society, if someone made an oath with someone significantly more powerful than them, like a king or a lord or general, well, if you entered into a covenant with someone far more important than you, it only ever worked one of two ways. Either you both walked through together or just the lesser party walked through. But it was never just the powerful party walking through alone. It was never the king walking through by themselves. And yet, here in this situation, God passes through these slain animals alone. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, if I don't do everything that I've promised to you, may I suffer. Abraham, if I don't do everything I say I'm going to do, may I be broken. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed for not keeping my end of the bargain. I mean, imagine God making a covenant with consequences this severe with a human being. Like, this is unheard of. Like, if this wasn't God himself doing it, but rather someone making up a story about this, this would be blasphemy that God would do something like this. That the God of the universe would make a promise to a human being that puts his own well-being in jeopardy. But, as we know, God always keeps his promises. And so... God, did he really put himself at risk? And here's how we know that he did. Because Abraham, although he didn't walk through the animal pieces and he didn't have any responsibilities to God, he did have a role to play. And his role to play was that Abraham had to accept this life. Abraham had to accept this promise. God making this promise, I'm going to save you, you're going to be my child, and I'm going to be your God. But the thing is, as humans, and Abraham is not exempt, we're just not very good at being God's children. We're just not really good at it. We're, we're so weak and predisposed to sin and ourselves 
that we can't even fully take on this gift that God is trying to give to us because we aren't good enough. And this is where the gospel comes center stage with this covenant-making ceremony because the truth is God didn't just walk through alone. God actually walked through the animals for him and Abraham. God walked through for both parties. God said, I'm making all these promises about what our relationship is going to look like. I'm making all these promises about what your life is going to look like, and it's going to be great. I'm going to bless you. But if you read the rest of the Old Testament, God's children turn their back on him again and again and again. Even after being delivered, they still find themselves distracted and weak and wandering away from God. Even after experiencing the grace and goodness of God firsthand, they still betray God just like we do. After knowing God, after knowing Jesus, we still find ourselves wandering, still find ourselves sinning, still find ourselves placing other things before this amazing God. And it's not because God isn't true to his word. God is. He's done the work. It's because we're terrible at accepting the gift. We can't even hold up our end of the bargain, and our end of the bargain is literally just to experience the goodness of God, and we still can't do that but God walked through those severed animals for both him and us which means that he kept his end of the bargain he did exactly what he said he was going to do his reputation was spotless but what he also did when he walked through those animals was that he brought our reputations and mess into it and if we couldn't just accept this gift he was making with this covenant well the oath he was making was broken and someone would have to pay for that. If both parties didn't live out this covenant perfectly, God had made himself responsible, not just for himself, but for Abraham and all of us too. Do you know why God didn't ask or even allow Abraham to walk through those animal pieces? Like Abraham wasn't even allowed to do that. But instead, God put himself on the line. What's well, because... God knew that Abraham was not going to be able to live up to the covenant. Abraham, just like all of us, would fail to embrace God. Abraham, just like all of us, would continue to make mistakes and continue struggling and messing up until the day he died. And if Abraham had walked through those pieces, Abraham would have had to pay the price for his mistake. But you see, God walked through for him. God walked through for us, which meant that God made himself the one who would pay the price for all of our mistakes. And what did we as humans do? We do what humans do. We failed. And so someone had to pay. And so hear this. Abraham, may I suffer and be broken and bleed out and die if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. But Abraham, may I also suffer and be broken and bleed out and die if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. Abraham, I'm going to save you even if I have to be the one to die for it. Enter Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb coming into the world. Jesus came and paid the debt for that 2,000-year-old oath. In the book of Isaiah, written 400 years before Jesus was even born, it's described in detail what Jesus would endure for us because of this curse of the covenant God took upon himself. This is what it says in Isaiah about what Jesus would do. It said he was despised 
am rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. About 600 years after God's, Aber, God's covenant with Abraham, the sons of Egypt paid for the sins of their fathers. And then 2,000 years after God's covenant with Abraham, the Son of God paid for the sins of humanity. Just like the animals in Genesis 15, Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, he was cut off from the presence of his Father, and he gave up his life to pay the price for you and I and Abraham. And I'm just like so shaken by that. Like every time I consider this, like my brain starts to short circuit and like I'm just completely overwhelmed that God cares for us like at all. Let alone that God loves us so much that he take our place. That God, knowing that I would never be perfect, knowing that despite my best efforts to live the life that he desires for me, I'd still continue to fail, that knowing I would never be able to offer an even remotely acceptable amount of love and commitment to him, that he would still die for me. And I think that in the church, we've fallen so far from our amazement of this that we begin fighting amongst ourselves and dividing ourselves over things that, one, we can't control, or two, that Jesus has already paid for. And instead of just basking in the glory and goodness of this God who walked between the animals for us and then hung on the cross to die for us, instead of being amazed by that, we allow ourselves to become jaded and bitter and resentful over things that just in comparison to the cross don't even matter. And it's like, when did we allow ourselves to become consumed with human issues instead of being consumed by what Jesus has done? And when do we allow ourselves to become angry or resentful towards God or, or, or towards God for the things that he hasn't given to us instead of being blown away by the things that he's already done for us? You know, there's a reason the writer of Hebrews is still writing about this promise over 2,000 years later, and there's a reason why we're still talking about it now, 4,000 years later. And the reason is because if we anchor ourselves to this message, if we anchor ourselves to this Savior, he will keep us steady and steadfast when the world starts to fall apart. He will give us hope when we encounter hopeless situations. You know, this week, we're going to be reflecting upon Good Friday and I just, I really strongly encourage you guys to be a part of it. And I just challenge you, like, no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter how much you know or don't know about Jesus, no matter what level of commitment you've given to him, just allow me to challenge you to anchor yourself to Jesus. Anchor yourself to Jesus, to allow 
his hope to infiltrate your life, to allow his grace to put together your broken pieces, to acknowledge the things that he has done on the cross for you, and then step into a life of gratitude and amazement that doesn't change with the tides because it's anchored in a hope that never fails and never lets go. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I'm just blown away as I read the life of Abraham. I'm blown away that you orchestrate things the way that you do, but more than anything else, I'm blown away that you would die for me. I know myself. I know my brokenness. I know how messed up I am, and the fact that you see me and you know me completely and you love me completely, that you would die for me in my mess. God, I, I'm just I'm, I'm blown away by that. God, I pray this week as we go back out into our lives, as we prepare to reflect upon Good Friday and Easter next Sunday, God, I pray that the message of the gospel just sits on our hearts. I pray that we're taking you with us everywhere that we go. We're just amazed by you, and as we go into next weekend, that the truth of what you've done for us and the truth of this freedom that you offer to us just resonates in our heart and just takes over and begins to transform us from the inside out. We are amazed by you, Lord. We love you. You are greater than everything else. Even when we're broken, even when we're messed up, you remain constant and steadfast and perfect. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.